Ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Red and Buried podcast. I'm Frankie and today I'm delighted to be joined all the way from LA by Greg Hurwitz. Woo! Hi Greg. Hi there, thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you for coming on. And also I I should have checked before we started recording, did I pronounce your surname correctly? You did indeed. Good. Thank goodness for that. It's, it's obviously, it's a very reasonable surname. So that would have been my stupidity. But how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well, though. I got to say the weather in LA looks a bit more like England than it does Los Angeles. <laughs> We're having a massive storm. Goodness. Well, maybe, yeah, I, 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 I'd like to apologize for that. I guess maybe because you were speaking to me, the weather from England transported over. Yeah, I'm... It's, it's, the, it's your polite British sensibility. <laughs> <laughs> to just apologize for things that aren't under your control. So I appreciate it. That is our MO over here. Yes. Yeah, so uh, sorry about that. See, I can't stop. Uh, before we get into a conversation about you and your fantastic new book, I've got a little bit of a bio about you, which I've pulled from various internet sources. Hopefully it's all accurate, but please feel free to tell me if anything's horribly wrong, if that works for you. <laughs> Right, I will begin. <clears throat> Greg Hurwitz is the New York Times number one internationally best-selling author of 24 thrillers, including the Orphan X series. His novels have won numerous literary awards and have been published in 33 languages. Greg currently serves as the co-president of International Thriller Writers. Oh, I should have said that without an inflection at the end. Greg serves as the co-president of International Thriller Writers. Additionally, he's written screenplays and television scripts for many of the major studios and networks, comics for AWA, including the critically acclaimed anthology New Think, DC, Marvel and Poetry. His latest book, Lone Wolf, is out on the 15th of February and is the ninth in his renowned Orphan X series. Once a black book government assassin known as Orphan X, Evan Smoke, and that's another thing I should have checked because I've only ever read it. I've never said it out loud. Did I say it correctly, Evan Smoke? Yeah, you you're on a roll. God, it's gonna any second now, it's gonna go horribly wrong. Evan Smoke left the program, went deep underground, and reinvented himself as someone who will go anywhere and risk everything to help the truly desperate who have nowhere else to turn. Since then, Evan has fought international crime syndicates and drug cartels, faced down the most powerful people in the world, and even brought down a president. Struggling with an unexpected personal crisis, Evan goes back to the very basics of his mission. And this time, the truly desperate is a little girl who wants him to find her missing dog. Not his usual mission, but not one Evan embraces with enthusiasm. But his un but this unlikely tiny job quickly explodes into the big his biggest mission yet. One that finds him battered between twisted AI technocrat billionaires, a mysterious female assassin who seems to mirror himself, and personal stakes so gut-wrenching he can scarcely make sense of them. Evan's mission pushes him to his limit. He must find and take down the assassin known only as Wolf before she succeeds in completing her mission and killing the people who can identify her. Identify her. A teenage girl of her last... Sorry. A teenage daughter of her last target and Evan himself. Match skill for skill, instinct for instinct. Instinct. Evan must outwit an opponent who will literally stop at nothing if he is to survive. 
Outside of writing, Greg lives with his family and various dogs in LA, Stormy LA. As well as being a very talented and successful writer across a plethora of mediums, he's also very charming, generous with his time, and shares wonderfully interesting and insightful videos about his writing process on social media. Well, thank you. That's a very... <laughs> Introduction. Well, there's a lot of lovely things to say. You've had an incredibly impressive career, and I really do enjoy your social media posts, I have to say. Very Thank interesting, you. especially the dog content is a personal preference of mine. You are clearly a dog person from what I've seen. <laughs> yeah, well, I have a couple of Ridgebacks, and we have <sighs> a scrappy little mutt who came into the mix a few months ago. <laughs> uh, but the Ridgebacks are mirrored in the Orphan X series with dog the dog they're my favorite i was gonna say and we get a lot of dog action in lone wolf as well which is a a joy and joey as well so let's 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 get straight into the book because it's it's brilliant and it's been as it's always it must be really tricky coming into the ninth installment of your series thinking how do i keep up how do i maintain this level was it a a challenge that you were conscious of as you approached writing lone wolf what's really weird about orphan x about the series is i always have a sense of what's coming next before it comes i'm really really engaged with it so earlier in my career i'd write a whole book and then i'd be at the end of it and i'd look back and kind of realize what the hell it was i was writing about (laughs) Because it was all in the subconscious. I don't think in terms of themes. I don't think I think about books come to me with specific scenes, specific action sequences, lines of dialogue, character beats, and they kind of shape up together. But with Orphan X, you know, each book resets specifically. So anyone can come on board, a new reader can come on board with anything. And I describe what happens. But there's a bigger arc that I feel like I'm kind of participating in. And so before this one, I just had such a strong sense of what could make this different. Uh, and I was I was really excited to write it. And I better be, you know, if I'm bored writing it, people are going to be bored reading it. And so yeah. uh, this series has kind of exceeded my expectations in how much fun I have tackling the next story and the next story. That's that must be, as you say, if you don't enjoy it, the reader won't enjoy it. But I oft, have you I, I've observed in the past, you know, people who have long running series or long running characters can get a bit fed up with them after a while. But that's definitely not the case for you. No, I mean, I would stop writing before that would happen. I mean, I yeah. can't, I already know what's coming next and I just have such a clear view of it. You know, one of my favorite quotations about writing is from Joan Didion. She said, I write so I know what I think. <laughs> and there's this very interesting thing that's happening to me with the series where I keep thinking about what Evan's sort of dealing with in his life or things I'm contending with in my life. And sometimes I'm slightly ahead of him and sometimes he's slightly <laughs> ahead of me. You know, with his missions, of course, everything is writ large and more grandly and, you know, strained through suspense and action Mm. and thrills. But it's a very interesting dance that I've had with him as a character. You've grown up together. You know, I, yeah, I mean, I spend more waking hours with him than I do with my wife and kids. So (laughs) I better find him compelling. Yeah, well, that would certainly help, I imagine. And With Evan, obviously, as you have grown up with him, really. I mean, how many years have you been writing him now? I imagine your your paths are so closely aligned. How much of yourself is in Evan at this point? A lot. I mean, you know, it's very funny when people, but now and then we go to the movies and it'll say, you know, based on true events or based on real events. And I always laugh because I'm thinking, (laughs) well, what's the alternative to that? Is there anything we can write that's not based in any way on real events? Because then where would that come from? 
And so, you know, there's fragments and pieces of me throughout all the characters in the books, you know, and Evan, there's certainly a lot of overlap. There's a lot of things he does a great deal better than I can. There's parts of me in everybody. There's parts of me in all the characters or else I wouldn't be able to dream them into existence and throw them at, throw them against each other. That's that's interesting. Do you think that you, as an author, you have to put a part of yourself into the characters you write in order to make them authentic? If Yeah, if you want to make them real. If I want to set up a straw man mm. that Evan just comes and kicks over, there's no problem. But the aim is to have every character feel three-dimensionalized. And even the antagonists, I want them to be able to have a motive mm. that's sort of whispering darkly to us where we think, huh, that, that makes a certain kind of sense. I could understand myself being in that situation because the biggest clashes that are compelling aren't between pure good and pure evil. It's between a sort of wrestling around complicated moral dilemmas and trying to mm. figure out how that is. So I like making the reader a little bit uncomfortable to put them in situations where the answers aren't always immensely clear or they make you think. And so that's a key part of it. It's really interesting, wasn't it? Because so rarely in life is it black and white, good, bad, you know, evil, not evil. So the, those nuances that create, as you say, that kind of moral ambiguity of what would I do in this situation and and make those characters more relatable, but also you almost hate part of it as well because you can understand some of the motives that they they fall into. Yeah, I mean, and I think a lot of that is is we're in a world that there's an increasing amount of pressure to think in black and white terms, yes. right? In group, out group. Who's your home team? Where are you safe? The higher the risk the more we tend to kind of solidify into these views. And one of the roles, I think, of fiction and thrillers, and look, crime fiction in a lot of ways is like what the social novel used to be. I mean, it's a way to experiment and to explore. Mm. And so I don't want to just explore and hand out to the reader, right? Here's everything you should be thinking and feeling, because then I'm not writing authentically. I'm writing propaganda. Yeah. Yes. And there's enough of that going around at the moment. We don't need any more. <laughs> I think that's right. I think that's right. You know, and so part of it, too, is, you know, there's a wonderful Tom Stoppard play. I, I don't know if you've, you've ever seen it called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. No, Does I haven't. Ring? No. So these are two of the most minor characters in Hamlet, in, in Shakespeare's mm. Hamlet. And so the title kind of makes fun of it because they're very secondary. And then when they die, they die, you know, off camera, so to speak. And someone just comes in and announces Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And that's the last we hear of them. They're very unimportant, trivial players. And Tom Stoppard, uh, the great British playwright, takes them in this play and he makes them the center of the entire play so that they're the main characters, these bit comedic players. And in the background, as they're discussing Hamlet's, you know, being a big drama queen and having his, <laughs> you know, monologues and Ophelia goes by in the background. And so the whole play is frozen around them. And it's something I always think about when I'm writing secondary characters, tertiary characters, everyone's the hero of their own story. Everyone's mm. the hero of their own play. Right. And so to try to incorporate and find those perspectives to give life to all the characters that when they come in, they're the hero of their own novel, right? They're not coming in the Orphan X's novel necessarily. And so it's a very good way to think about trying to make every, trying to breathe life into everybody and not have people there just to serve as a function for the plot or the story or for Evan to look good. 
Yeah. And, and that's, I, I saw a clip on your, on your uh, Instagram, actually, of you saying that, you know, to have a character in a scene, if there's no point in them being there, then why are they there? You know, is it just like scenery unless they have, a, they're a real person. Yeah. What's the I'll point? I'll tell you where you them? learn that, that well is working on a, a TV show Ugh. because you can't pull an actor out of their trailer <laughs> right and have her show up in a scene to stand in the corner and just mouth breathe right if there's no lines <laughs> they'll let you know and so you you know it, it's it's very good training to think you know if you're gonna get a character up and out of their trailer and on the page they better have something to do right or yeah. or if they're not doing something they better be not doing something intentionally and observing <laughs> so you know it's it's that's the challenge is to try to make everything real and heighten the suspense in that regard because we feel like we're watching dynamics between people we're watching tension and conflict happen where everyone's got a side yeah i'm sorry i'm still thinking about hamlet being described as a drama queen which is brilliant <laughs> you know yeah. that enough of shakespeare he was a bit yeah. over tt i have to say so when you think in terms of writing is it always character first for you always well so i people often will ask like well what do you believe in character or plot and i think mm. i think plot is character in motion Right. Because a character has to make choices. When I'm writing an Orphan X scene, he doesn't react the way that James Bond would or Jack Reacher would, right? Evan's not the best looking guy. You know, I always say in every book, I say just an average guy, you know, average side, average build, just a normal guy, not too good looking. That's how I describe <laughs> him. He's not the best looking. He's not the biggest guy like Reacher. And so when I, if I'm writing him well, every single part of it has to be how does Evan Smoke react differently and uniquely in the scene? What's it, what differentiates an Orphan X action scene from a, a, a born action scene? Like what are all the things that make him unique and that make the story one that, that, that your characters can't ever react in a way that most people would react or else you're just sort of writing something that's typical. And so all of it is about this unique character moving through the world in a way that is unique to him and his movement through that world is what sort of defines orphan x and and you know it's not just about plot and twists and turns and suspense that gets old quickly mm. if it's not embedded in character if an action sequence doesn't speak to character and i think we've certainly all had those experiences where we're sitting in a big action movie and you get to the third act and 12 minutes in, you just feel like you're getting punched in the face with action, like you don't care. And so it's very important to make sure that the stakes are there all the way throughout. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where as well with the characters, particularly your characters, we've gone on a journey with them, particularly over these nine books and Evan and, and his family and the way he relates to those characters has been a real journey that we've been a part of and it's been so lovely to see. And especially with this one, as you kind of said, you know, he's done some incredible, over-the-top, dramatic things, but this is his arguably, in theory, his smallest undertaking, but turns out to be his biggest. So That's how right. yeah, especially with with the personal stakes as you as we alluded to in the little bio read out there, it's it's a lot to him. So where did the inspiration come from for a smaller story in theory? Obviously turns into something so much bigger for Evan. But I'm always trying to have in each book, there's something he's gotta be contending with within himself that's a reflection of the bigger plot. And so we open, you know, Evan is an orphan. It's Orphan X. The program, it's a government program. He was taken out of a foster home when he was 12 mm. years old and trained to be an assassin. But his handler and father figure, Jack Johns, actually loved him. So in addition to this being, you know, him being trained to do unspeakable things in unspeakable places, 
It also is the best thing that ever happened to him because Jack loved him and teaches him language and history and martial arts. And so he has this whole education he never would have gotten in an East Baltimore foster home, right? He would have wound up in in prison or with a needle in his arm or dead by now. Um, But one of the things that Jack tells him is the hard part isn't making you a killer. The hard part is keeping you human. Mm. And in a way, that's the tragic flaw because if Evan was just a true believer, then the world would be sorted into black and white and he wouldn't have the sort of suffering and the, or, you know, trying to figure his way towards meaning imperfectly as he does. So in this one, the opening salvo is he gets a phone call. Well, first of all, I should say the man who claimed who might be his father, Evans never met his mother and father, you know, when the series starts, you know, he, it opens with him having some confrontation discussion. We don't really know what with his father and it puts him on his ass in a way we've never seen in the series. Yeah. So when we first catch up to him, we still don't really know what happened. If he met the guy, was the guy his father? How did it go? But he's not in good personal shape, which is very, very out of form for him. And he gets a phone call and there's a little girl who's missing her dog. And what's so funny is he thinks, well, this is the smallest, stupidest mission I've ever gotten. (laughs) There's a phone number that he has since he's left the program that people call. It's an encrypted line. And basically, when he answers, he always says, do you need my help? And it's people who are in desperate positions, who have nowhere to turn. They can't go to the authorities. They have nowhere else to turn. And they're being terrorized by another person or group of people. In this case, it's a girl missing her dog. And he thinks this is the dumbest mission I've ever had. I even make a joke about it. You know, Orphan X in the case of the missing dog. Like it's a little, little tiny, cozy mystery, right? And as he embarks in this, he goes to sort of explore it. And there's a point where he sees... He goes to kind of catch up to the story and it leads and sort of launches him into the most sustained suspense scene I've ever written in my career. I mean, there's there's a 50 page run of this mission that he thinks is tiny, continuing to escalate and telescope and get more surreal and get bigger and get more dangerous and get more menacing. And so this suspense scene goes from this very slow start that's that's vaguely comedic into this un, this sort of insane nonstop sequence of suspense that happens. And when it finally ends and he catches his breath, he has to approach the rest of the story in this mission in a way that's quite different. But that that is, is the humor in it as well, I think, that makes it so much more human and, and relatable as well. Mm-hmm. And it because, you know, it, it it's so rare in life that there's not humor in a in a moment, especially the dark part. So yeah, yeah. Well, that exactly. Especially, I, I mean, it's very British to have very gallows humor a lot of the time as well. So it 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 works so beautifully. And the character of Wolf, I don't want to go into too much detail because we don't want to spoil anything. But was that the most fun writing the character of Wolf? Because wow, what a match for Evan. Well, she's delightful, and yes. I wanted to have a character who is a dark mirror and opposite to Evan. And so there's this female assassin who sort of thinks like him. She moves like him. She's got very similar gear and it's like this reflection. He's left-handed and she's right-handed and they're just up at each other, up against each other. And it's a real sort of chessboard match that's assassin versus assassin. And she's got a very cold evolutionary view of the world, right? Like she's got to kill to eat, you know? And so She's tilted a bit more towards the psychopathic end of the scale, but she has a very clear code of how she occupies her profession and what she's willing to do. 
And so it's very interesting as Evan comes up against her. I think he's up against, you know, I think she's the most menacing threat he's faced aside from the other orphans who at one point pursued him. She's very, very dangerous. And what's even more dangerous, he's soon going to learn is why is she pursuing these people and who is behind her? And that's an even more dangerous and sprawling concern. Was it fun to write a more clearly psychopathic character in that way? And and the, particularly as you said, the mirror opposite it was like a very dark Groucho Marx mirror <laughs> duck soup kind of feel to it. Was that a lot of fun for you to take a little bit of a darker turn with that? Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's also very compelling to have her because she has a very clear code. I don't like yes. writing just sort of insane psychopaths because yeah. the question of motive always interests me and if someone's truly insane it's sort of like well why'd they kill everybody they're crazy there's not too much to do with that mm-hmm. and so she's a force with a particular code and the way her code meets evan and evan's code that was quite compelling and then mm-hmm. especially when i get into what's sort of driving her and who's employed her and how that's relevant to every one of our lives every one of the lives of our readers and the ways we have to think about, right, these technocrats who are playing mm. games within our phones and our computers and our minds. And the the plot really goes into some contemporary threats that I don't even think we've been able to identify as threats yet. Yes, that felt very timely in a lot of ways, I think, given the uh, the evolution of the technocrats over the last you know, maybe 10 years in particular. Was there any particular inspiration around those characters for you? Well, there's a lot. You know, I grew up in Silicon Valley. I grew up in the Bay Area just before the sort of dot-com explosion. And so I'd spent a lot of time for various reasons, some for research, some just with friends and some for, you know, just kind of keeping up on the world with different, you know, brilliant billionaire technocrats or brilliant visionaries who are leading the fields, you know, whether it's AI or computer chip design. And so I wanted to write a bit about that kind that part of the that aspect of the world and how it seeks to control and manipulate us for profit. Yeah. And so you said that you you can see ahead when you're writing your Orphan X series, you kind of know what's going to be coming later online. How far ahead are we looking here in the future of Orphan X in your mind? Well, certainly at least through a decology. Wow. Yeah. So that's amazing. This is the ninth. Yeah, I have a very, very good handle on what would be the 10th book. And after that, nothing will be the same after oh. the 10th or X book. Oh, wow. Okay. Very intriguing stuff. If that's not an incentive for everyone to catch up on all of them, ready for that, the 10th installment, I don't know what is. And speaking of character, which we've done a fair bit, a question I like to ask all the authors that I speak to is, and this is a fascinating one, if you had to be a character from one of your books, Given that obviously there's a bit of you in all of them, who would you be and why? I'd be Dog the Dog. <laughs> Good choice. <laughs> Evan rescues a Rhodesian Ridgeback from an underground fighting ring in one of the early books and gives the dog to Joey, Josephine Morales, who is his sort of his charge, right? She's yeah. She calls him her uncle person. They have a very close relationship. 17-year-old, brilliant hacker. She's uh, Mexican-American and just whip smart. And so he gives her this dog and she doesn't grow attached to the dog. She wants to not grow attached to the dog, I should say. So she won't give it a name. So the dog's name is Dog the Dog. And of course, she falls heedlessly in love with this dog. 
and the dog persists. But I've always joked that, you know, in, in my next life, I want to come back as one of my dogs. I think they have like the best life imaginable. And so yeah. as much as it would be fun to be Evan, you know, I think to be a, the, the Rhodesian Ridgeback taken care of by him and Joey would be a rather delightful existence. Yeah, because you get a taste of the action, but you also get to sleep a lot and have a nice, nice relaxing time. And you get to be a Rhodesian Ridgeback. I mean, what's better than that? That's a pretty superior breed within that as well. So, yeah, I okay, go. that's a good choice. I probably is, given some of the outcomes of some of the other characters and the things they've gone through, that's probably, even though they had a that's rough right. start, dog, better yeah. ending. It's a, it's a hedonistic lifestyle. <laughs> and Ridgebacks, you know, they sit around. Like I always joke with my dogs. I feel like I have these incredible exotic African animals in the house. Like they're very dignified. They, It's like they sit around and wait for someone to come paint their oil portrait. <laughs> and then they just take naps. And it's a very, it's a very nice existence. It's sort of like having a pride of lions about. Yeah, but slightly less lethal, one would hope, at the very least. Sometimes. Sometimes. So with your writing process, obviously you're, you've been writing your entire life, it feels like, or at least reading in that respect. What Has your process changed a lot over the years, especially in your ninth book in this series? Do you have the same approach to every book in your series in terms of process, obviously? Yeah, the, I mean, the narrative. Look, I... It's it's evolved for sure. I mean, I would, you know, when I was first writing, I was a kid. I wrote, I, I wrote parts of my first book. I was 19. I was still an undergraduate. Wow. And I just wrote a chunk. And on the one hand, it's really great because I was so fortunate to be able to start my career young. On the other hand, no one should ever be accountable for anything they said or thought when they're 19 years <laughs> old, right? Let alone have yes. it, you know, permanently captured on the page. But, you know, my first two books when I was writing, you can't write a book. You can't learn how to write a book without trying to write it and screwing it up. Like there's no way to do it properly from the gates. It's like trying to figure out how to have a relationship, you know, so it's a lot of trial and error. So my first books, I wrote very terrible rough drafts. And then I took the whole book apart like an engine block. My first book, I believe I took through 16 drafts wow. to get it right and to sell it. And, you know, now I do a lot of rewriting. I have a lot that's in my kind of lizard brain that's coded in about pacing and character. So by the time I'm done with a rough draft, it's probably closer to what my, like a sixth or seventh draft was earlier in my career. So I can get further along as I'm going. A lot of that's encoded. Um and at different stages, I've outlined different amounts. I mean, I've, I've kind of vacillated, but every book is different. And I always try and stretch and reach because, you know, I always want to be a little bit scared that I can't pull it off. And that's how <laughs> I know that I'm doing the right thing and not just writing the same book over and over again. I want to try something new and have some hesitation as to how I could make it work. And the approach for writing, say, in your Orphan X series versus a standalone or something completely different, obviously, there's a, there's an element of having to rebuild characters or introduce characters in a way that's accessible if someone hasn't read the whole series, as you say. So how is that, without having to start with a whole load of exposition in painful, excruciating detail, you do it really naturally, it feels like, in Lone Wolf, like someone yeah. could pick it up. It doesn't feel like you're trying to cram about previously on Orphan X or anything. But how do you approach making sure your author is your author, sorry, your reader is filled in enough to carry on with the story without well, cramming it down the throats? <laughs> that's a good question. You know, it's it's a lot of that is some of the art of trying mm. to not give too much information up front, right? I don't want to have a big, you know, exposition dump. Yeah. So it's bits and pieces as we go. And then every book has to be fully formed and a satisfying experience. Often what I'll do is I'll I'll conclude the mission or the story. And then at the very end, I like to turn over one card that's a cliffhanger for what comes next. But it's got to be an experience that 
new readers are welcomed in at every stage because, and that's part of what's happened. The series has grown book after book, but it's also, it's, it's a little bit tricky because I'm also writing to people who've read the whole series. And so it's trying to keep an Uber narrative going while also making sure that every book is a standalone page turner that anyone can jump into and enjoy. Tricky. But clearly you do it very well. So it's working out well. well. (laughs) And with with your writing process, another question I like to ask all the authors I speak to is, what do you like most and least about it? I look, I love writing. I mean, one of the things I say, I live in LA. I meet a lot of people who want to be writers. I meet very few people who want to write. Right. (laughs) When I'm writing and it's going well, there's nothing that's better. I mean, I lose time. I'll go in. It's three hours pass in a blink. I mean, so I'm I'm not one of these people where writing is a tortured process. Some people say, I don't like writing. I like having written. (laughs) I love when I'm in it and it's going well. I really love the process. You know, the worst part probably for me, there's different stages. I think a little bit in terms of a classic screenplay structure that's sort of three acts. And then if you triple them roughly in a lot of give or take, it's a novel. Novels don't have to be as sort of rigidly structured as a screenplay because a screenplay, you know, a novel's 400 pages of final product and a screenplay is 110 pages with a lot of white on the page, right? It's a recipe or an invitation to collaborate. It's a very different thing. But structurally with a novel, you know, for me, it's it's often in the middle where I think, oh, I like this isn't going to work. This is going to be a mess. You know, everything's boring. Everything's slowed down. I love starting and I love finishing. And often there's a period in the middle where I feel like I've lost the thread and it's gotten predictable enough that, you know, it doesn't always happen. It happens a little bit less. And I'm less concerned each time when it happens because I have, you know, a lot of decades now, boy, decades now of writing under my belt. Yeah. So it's that seems to be a common theme from everyone I, I speak to is that wall, the runner's wall you hit as a writer right in the middle there. And you think, how am I going to get around it? But you know, you're going to get around it or write around it, I should say. Yeah. And I think part of it is, is, you know, there's like, there's an, there's a lot of adrenaline for me at the start and at the finish. And with the middle, like, you know, sometimes I'll spend, you know, several days working on one scene, let's say in the middle, and I'll Mm. feel like it's completely slowed down. But of course, for the reader, it's not going to take several days to read, you know, two 10 page chapters. I mean, so the pacing for me gets a little trickier. And with a screenplay, you always know where you are in a script. I mean, you can always like reach back and grab the lip of the first act and you know where the you you know where you are, and with novels, in some way, you go down into them and you write under, and then you pop out the other end and look back at them, and you hope it doesn't suck. I mean, like <laughs> there's no way to have everything all the time, you know. And so, as much as that happens a lot, where I can be inside the book that it's all I'm thinking about, there's some aspect of the way that it paces and reads that you just can't hold entirely in your head, at least for me in the in the in the middle. And so I always have fear it's getting boggy, but quite often that fear is not justified. I'll go back and read it and go, oh, this wasn't, this wasn't nearly as much of a problem as I thought. And as you, you said, like script writing, also I, I'm fascinated by the process of writing a comic and writing graphic novels and things like that, mm. because you're relying on the visuals so heavily in a way, but you still have to have the, the strong writing to carry the story through. How do you achieve that balance when writing a visually led piece like that? 
Well, I, you know, you write very specifically to direct the artists. Mm. I've worked with, you know, I, I worked, I've, I've been really fortunate to work on Wolverine and Punisher and Batman. I wrote Batman for two years for DC and I've worked with some of the greatest artists in the world. And so one of the things that happens is when you're writing a screenplay, you don't over direct. It's a kind of a sign of being an amateur. If you say, right. you know, zoom in on pan over to, cause at some point the director comes over and kind of pats you on the head and says, well, thank you so much, Spanky, but this is actually my job and I'll figure it out from here. With comics, you have to because you're telling a story in basically four to eight snapshots per page, right? So mm. I can't show Batman punch somebody. I can show the wind up, the moment of impact or the aftermath. And so it's very selective to choose what and when you're doing it. So you're choosing four to six times that you're going to take the picture and so you have to direct a lot. Like I can mm. say like close up on Batman in the reflection of Batman's eyes, we see the Joker. I'm, I'm, I'm giving a, a way that the visual storytelling can take place. Now, given the caliber of the artists I work with, they're not filling in the blanks. Like this is not, you know, painting by colors. Mm. And so what I'm giving them is my vision of how this could be told. And quite often they will improvise and upgrade and figure out ways to make that visual storytelling hold together in a way that I couldn't possibly see because I do not have a visual artist's mind or eye. And so they make me look like a much better writer than I am. <laughs> and that's what happens when you work with artists like David Finch and Ethan Van Skyver and, you know, Neil Adams wrote one of mine. I mean, I've worked wow. with just wonderful talent. And so it's a, it's a really fun collaborative process. Well, you are still a very good writer, obviously, trying to be humble at the end there. But a line, a question I like to ask as well, a newer question to my roster is, what's a line that you've written lately that you're especially proud of or just from your canon in general? Hard I to pick to just back, one, I'm sure. I tend to go back to these sort of seminal anchor lines. I mean, one of the things that's really important to me is not just to have the plot working and the characters working, but I also, I, I do like spending time and trying to make the language beautiful, you know, and there's, it's, it's, there is an aesthetic with line after line that I'm, I'm always trying and striving to make all the parts kind of hold. I would think that the lines that, that I come around to the most, I would, I don't know if it's, I'm necessarily proudest of, but I tend to come back to the kind of cornerstone lines. I already mentioned one that Jack Johns, Evans Handler tells him when he's 12 years old, he says, the hard part won't be making you a killer. The hard part is keeping you human. That's in each of the books. Yeah. Another observation that I return to a lot is that Evan was trained in all these different things, seer training, you know, mixed martial arts fighting, close quarters combat, psyops. But I say he never learned to speak the strange language of intimacy. Um, and that's yeah. a phrase that I return to a lot because he can calculate the wind drift, you know, on a sniper round, no problem. But he's completely undone if he has to make small talk, <laughs> you know, in the elevator with the single mother district attorney who lives downstairs with whom he has a great deal of chemistry. But if she ever fully knew who he was, she'd have to arrest him. I mean, so these the everyday banter he doesn't quite know how to contend with. Um, and that's been a really fun part of it because the one thing we never get to see is James Bond go home, right? Or Jason yes. Bourne have an awkward encounter at the mail slots with somebody. And so there's a comedic back and forth where Evan will go from a knife fight, life and death threats and stakes, and he'll get home and get pulled into like a horrible homeowners association meeting. <laughs> and they're like voting on the depth of the carpet pile for the lobby. And he's sitting there like, 
bleeding through his sleeve and trying to cover it up. So a lot of the fun that I have is taking him back and forth between the sort of mythological archetypal world and then the real world where you and I live. And those bits of humor and those bits of feeling kind of out outflanked and overwhelmed and like we're not sure what to do. Uh, a little bit of that imposter syndrome, I think, is something a lot of people can relate to. Oh, definitely. That's Evan at his most vulnerable is when he's having to interact on a normal day to day basis where his strengths yeah, don't lie. Yeah, he's just unbiased. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, and how many of us think that we do speak oh, yeah. the strange language of intimacy perfectly? I mean, that's a. Uh, that's like sort of ever receding tide sometimes because there's there's always more to learn. There's always more to learn about how to have grace and connection with other people and all the ways mm. that we stumble on our way to it. And so for him doing it, particularly in comedic yeah. situations, it's always a lot of fun to write about. And it's always the the awkward interactions that you think that come to you late at night when you're trying to fall asleep and you think, why did I say that? Or why couldn't I think of the thing to say in that moment? So it's a very relatable thing. To it's have a lovely there. thing in writing books because, you know, I have a whole year to decide if I want to upgrade or retort as opposed to in real <laughs> life, you know, when you go home and you think, oh, God damn it, I missed my chance. This, yeah, here's yeah. what I should have said. I, I could just go back and edit that. But I will say some of the characters like Joey is funnier than I am in real time when I'm writing her. Like, so sometimes if you can get into the cadence and the gallop of a character with their voice, it's really fun because they'll come like this in a way that that feels, um, you know, there's they can be smarter and more clever than I am in real time, which is a blast. I find that so fascinating when characters basically do become real and take on a life of their own for authors. Like Agatha Christie always said that Poirot was so much more intelligent than she was. And you're saying that Joey's, you know, wittier in the moment than you are. How does that happen, do you think, that these characters become, you know, their own real person through the writing? I think it's just, it's the best version of play or sports, mm. even, right? When we're When we're being imaginative, there's times, you know, like I played a lot of, you know, what you people call football. I played a little bit in England too <laughs> when I was over there. And there's times that it doesn't like you'll, you'll take a shot and it does, there's no way if you stopped and calculated it that you'd think, Oh, I'm going to strike this with my foot this way on a curve with this ink. There's no way, mm -hmm. but there's a point that your body takes over. Right. And we say this all the time. If we're talking about a player who's amazing, if you're watching Michael Jordan, we'll say, Oh my God, he's out of his head. Right. It's he was it's like they're out of you're out of your thinking state almost. And I think when we're very focused and doing the thing we're meant to do, if it's a sculptor who's sculpting, if it's a, you know, athlete performing, if it's a therapist who's really in the zone with with a client, I think everybody has this any field of expertise when you're doing it right, mm. you're in a stage that's better than your brain can keep up with, let's just say. And I think it's that paired with my favorite quotation in all of psychology is from the great American psychologist, William James. And he said, act like the person you want to be. I think it's just, it's so wonderful because, you know, a lot of times if I'm in a situation in my own life where something's really hard or difficult or screwed up emotionally, and I can feel all my, you know, worst petty <laughs> angry, short-tempered reactions coming out. I'll think of that. I'll think if I was writing myself as a character who I might admire, how would I act? And in that way, imagination can be liberating. Imagination can be inspiring. I think that's part of what happens when I'm when I'm writing. If I'm thinking of a character, I'm thinking of these people who are better than I am in certain ways or more or more 
menacing than I am in certain ways. And if I can find that state, it's, it's, uh, it's play. That's all. That's really what it is. It's it's learning how to play well and remembering how to play well. And we could all benefit from that. I think that's what we love yeah. about reading. You yes. know, when you're reading a book, you're not just the hero. You're all the other characters in the book also. And so that's part of why I like to write them that, that as, as I move through, I don't have Evan be unassailable. I, he's not, a, he's not a hero, meaning, you know, he does the right, he's, he's moving in perfectly towards some solution for people who are who are less empowered than he is and suffering terribly. But it doesn't mean that he does all things right. And he often gets brought down a notch or right confronted. I surround him with a lot of very uh, textured and complicated women and a lot of subject matter experts who are better than he is at doing one thing. Like Tommy Stojak, his armorer, is a better marksman than he is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Candy McClure is better at dissolving bodies in certain types of fighting. Joey Morales is a better hacker than he is. So it's not a tone of kind of adoration around Evan, but what he does is he brings the totality of who he is to any mission to solve it. It's got to be everything. I think of him, he's like Ulysses. He's the man of many wiles. You know, Ulysses wasn't the best archer. He wasn't the best fighter, right? That was Achilles, but he was second and third in every category. And that's that's sort of what Evan brings is he's able to assimilate and hold the center to all these people around him. And so there's there's a lot of fun in that. There's a lot of texture. There's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of learning and stumbling and 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 things that keep him very real to me rather than a kind of paragon of, you know, a generic version of masculinity. Well, there's nothing more boring than perfection is there in a character. It's just so dull <laughs> and you don't want to right, root for right. that person if they're and one perfect. of the things he has to learn is that you know he's he's got these 10 assassins commandments that he's li- that he lived his whole life by you know the second one is how you do anything is how you do everything and that's off off that's probably the most quoted of all the the commandments but they're very sort of clear thinking for how you achieve operational perfection as an assassin who's on enemy turf doing the impossible and the one thing that he comes up against in the series, you know, starting from the very beginning is the opposite of perfection in certain regards is intimacy mm-hmm. because people are messy. We're messy. We make mistakes. We have emotions. We don't understand things. And so for Evan to be able to operate perfectly, if Jack had snuffed his humanity out of him, he could just be this sort of true believer, sort of automated, right? This robot. But instead, when he's dealing with people with the messy realities of life, right? That's complicated. And that can erode, emotion can erode that operational perfection. And part of what he's really coming to discover in the series, the series is really about the his process of, I think of it that when the first book starts, it's almost like Evan realizes that as Orphan X, he's Pinocchio, but what he wants to be is a real boy. Right. Like he wants to understand what it means to be real. And that process starts to dissolve and unravel all of these rules and this whole, you know, network of perfection around him. Because look, if you're perfect, if you're perfect and you're alone, then you're not perfect because you're alone. You don't, you can't deal with anybody else in your life. And so the series is really about him contending with all those messy grays in the middle and emotion and feeling and all this stuff that he was raised to be able to slide to a back burner if he has to groat someone in a, you know, <laughs> Moscow banya. 
Yeah, you don't want distractions while you're doing that. So that's understandable. They're um, terrible. I'm oh, sure you've been there. It's yeah. the worst, I know. But luckily, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just all about the grotting. It, we've all had those nights at uni. <laughs> exactly. We've got to pass the time. Uh, you mentioned as well reading. And I'm curious, as somebody that works as hard as you do and does as much as you do, do you have much time for reading these days? You know, yes. I, it's, I became a writer in large part because of how much I love reading. Now and then I'll hear from writers who say, I can't, I can't read other stuff when I write because it infects my tone or my voice. I hear that a lot. And I think like I'm writing all the time. That means I would never read, you know, so I'm constantly reading and I read very widely. I'm an omnivore. That's that's a healthy way to live and to read. What was the last book that you read and loved? Oh boy, this is going to sound immensely pretentious, though I don't mean it as such. (laughs) I've just gone back to, it's funny with some ways with the world starting to atomize and fragment, I've started to go back to kind of foundational texts. Mm. And so I've been rereading Plato. I've been rereading the dialogues. And I just read um, Socrates' Apology, where he's, uh, again, I I don't think I've read it fully since my freshman year at university, where he's being put to death, right? And everyone's deemed that he's corrupted all the youth and he's got to drink hemlock and he's He's saying why he won't leave. Everyone's kind of begging him to just leave or accept a lesser punishment. And so it's this amazing discussion that he has that he's sort of addressing in dialogue format, this council, and he's in Athens, knowing that at the end, he's going to drink hemlock and kill himself. Um, so I've, I've, I've gone back to that. But I've, you know, I've, I've also read a, a bunch of thrillers. I just got the new the new book from the author of The Silent Patient called The Fury. Yes. I'm going to embark on that shortly. I believe it just came out in England. Yes. Um, I love reading Robert B. Parker, the American mm. mystery writer who wrote Spencer for Hire. I love reading Megan Abbas. I mean, my nightstand is just stacked with books. So they're very, very rangy. That is quite um, a range. Oh, oh, you know what I liked a lot? I really liked reading Anna O. Oh, Yeah. Oh, that's that's did just coming that? out. No, I haven't read it yet, but I know there's a lot of buzz around it. it. Sounds sounds intriguing. Yeah, I did just read that and enjoyed it very much. So, yeah, it's it's rangy, but a lot of times I'll go down a path and read something, and then it'll refer me to something else and something else and something else. Yeah, um, and I also get to read a lot of contemporaries to give blurbs. Mm-hmm. Right, I have a lot of. I mean, that's one of the great things is I have so many friends. Look, I've been doing this for thirty years, which is just wild. Um, but you know, I have friends who have new books that come out, right? A new Lisa Gardner book, a new, you know, Robert Crace novel, Baldacci will have something come out. And so I'm also keeping up with a lot of that. And I'll be at Thriller Fest. You you you'd mentioned I've been uh enjoying being the co-president of International Thriller Writers. And yes. we have a convention every year in New York called Thriller Fest. And this year, one of our thriller masters is Dennis Lahane, who is one of my absolute favorite. Uh, authors. And so um, I'm really looking forward to that. I'll be interviewing him on stage. But I just read his Small Mercies is a wonderful book. Of course, people know him from Mystic River and Gone Baby Gone and Shutter Island. You know, so yeah, I love I love reading. I mean, we could we could spend a whole other hour on that. Oh, if only. (laughs) Absolutely. And Greg, I'm afraid we've reached the point in the podcast where I have to confront you about a terrible thing that you've done now. Uh oh. Mm, I know it's a bit awkward and I'm sorry to have to do this, but I'm afraid, Greg, you've committed a terrible, heinous crime. So terrible, so heinous in nature, Greg, that unfortunately you have been sentenced to death. Ugh. 
Sorry. That happened fast. Yeah, it escalated very quickly. I'll, I'm not going to lie. But yeah. what of the special relationship between England and, and America? Does that get me any? I'm afraid no. not. No. Yeah, well, it depends, actually. Do you know what? Maybe we can negotiate this. What What do you think you've done to warrant this punishment? I don't know. I'm I'm standing abashed. It feels <laughs> Kafka-esque. I feel like Socrates before the... <laughs> Athenian council, just less wise. Yep. Well, we, I was going to suggest hemlock as the method, if that works for you. Um, okay. Slow paralysis of know, Am I allowed to know what I'm charged with? I mean, well, are we going to have... How about some English common law? Can we get that in here? <laughs> well, the thing is, I... If you don't want to confess, you're pleading the fifth, that's fine. Normally, this is an opportunity for the for the author to confess. We've had some stunning confessions on here in the past. Robert Crace, when I asked him that question, just said murder. Oh, yeah, I committed murder. He just very openly confessed to it. But whatever it was, it must Bob have been pretty bad. Bob not be trusted, for sure. <laughs> well, clearly, absolutely. So, All right, so you're looking, it's Kafka-esque. You're okay. not... You're going to make me come up with the thing you for which I... You have to confess your yeah. crime, yes. Ah, let's see. Um, I would say probably uh, one time I I drank alcohol from a plastic. I, I drank um, a, a fine vodka on the rocks from a plastic cup when there was no option to drink it properly from a chilled martini glass. Yikes. Um, you know, that's sort of like arriving at opera late. You know, yeah. I don't believe in the death penalty for many things, but I think both of those should probably go with it. A fine okay. spirit should never be drank out of plastic. That. Definitely punishable by death at the very least. I think that's right. I think so. We'll serve the hemlock to you in a very nice glass, beautiful martini glass that's to, to make that's up good. for it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we'll take it out of the freezer. Okay. Well, the good news is, though you have been sentenced to death and it's looking pretty bad for you, I can get you the death row meal of your dreams. So it's not all bad. You're welcome. Oh <laughs> what would your death row meal be? Oh my goodness. It's going to be an elaborate death death row meal. So Fantastic. I would say I definitely need pizza. Sure. That's without any kind of question. The world's <laughs> best pizza, of course, would be mushroom, black olive, and salami. Mm, that sounds yeah. good. I would need a tray of sushi, certainly. Um, yes. Really, really clean you know, just not not a bunch of rolls and crunch and sauces, but like clean, properly cut. Hokkaido. Yeah, like. that's right. I could do some sashimi. And I would like a a chocolate cake. No, I'm sorry. An ice cream cake with mint chocolate chip ice cream for dessert. Wow, that is a meal. That is a great meal. So you start with the pizza and then work your way towards the ice cream cake in terms of order yeah, of yeah. things. That's towards the end. But, you know, it's like I don't have to worry about my weight. You really don't. And potentially if we don't, if, you know, if we even get to the hemlock, those might kill you first. So, you know, it's all to play for. <laughs> okay. Wow. So that's a great choice of meal. But unfortunately, I'm afraid we have now served you your martini glass of hemlock. And you have now passed. I'm very sorry. But more good news. This is the most aggressive <laughs> interview I've ever had. I've never been put to death in an interview before. No? But. Oh, well, first time for everything. And a last time because you're now dead. Red and buried, though. I shouldn't know. <laughs> I was forewarned. That we, we we like to be subtle with the, uh, with the hinting there. And to, to keep on with the theme of red and buried, the, more good news for you, though, Greg. Although you are now dead, I will bury you with the book of your choice. So more fun to be had. What book would you be buried with? 
complete works of William Shakespeare, probably the Riverside edition. Shakespeare for me is the template into everything. And he also was the original thriller writer. You know, he yeah. was, he wasn't, you know, hoity toity. He wasn't even writing this stuff down for uh, posterity. He's trying to put asses in chairs to sell out the globe theater. And he wrote tales of lust, intrigue, ambition, and murder, highly structured, highly plot driven. And I think you can interpret the whole world through Shakespeare. Do you have a particular favorite? Coriolanus. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. All right. I'll pad your coffin out nicely with the complete works. That should keep you boxed in pretty tight. So I, I very much appreciate this small kindness. You're welcome. You see, it's not yeah. all bad. Uh, well, I'm really sorry I had to kill you, Greg, because it's been so lovely chatting to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. Talk. <laughs> Where can people follow you online for more of your wonderful videos about writing and the rest? Well, I'm I'm on Twitter, Facebook. Instagram, YouTube, um, all of them. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the usual suspects. You know, the most stuff is probably Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's yeah. the most. But I do YouTube. I think there's a TikTok channel that we have. Um, so you can find me. I'm also online at gregherwitz.net. Extra G on the end of my first name, which yes. my parents saddled me with to ensure that my <laughs> name is spelled my entire life. And you can sign up for newsletters. And updates there as well for tours. I'm, you know, I, I do get to England with some regularity and do events there. So feel free to sign up um, for those yeah, updates. Absolutely. Great. Well, I, I really feel like I should after I had you killed and everything. So the least I could do really is sign up for your mailing list as a penance. That's very, you're very kind. You're thank the you. picture of charity, Frankie. I know. Thank you. Yes. I'm a, I'm a gracious, gracious murderer in that respect. Yeah. Oh, Greg, thank you so much. It's been a true delight to chat to you and everyone needs to go out and buy Lone Wolf and the rest of all of your books as well, but Lone Wolf as a matter of urgency. And thank you to everybody who listened today. We'll be back very soon with another episode. One other thing, Greg, is I never know how to end this podcast. I'm terrible at it. What would you recommend? How should we end uh, this? I, I think we wish everybody um, delightful reading with a glass of whatever they most prefer by the fireplace. Oh, that's a really with the nuts. dog, Ideally with the dog curled at their feet. That's a much nicer ending than I gave you. You're a very gracious man. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing my best to pull us out of the affair. <laughs> to pull yourself out of the grave. Wonderful. Right. Thank you, Greg. Thanks, everyone. Go and enjoy your drink by the fire. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. How would you like to challenge your little grey cells while revelling in the vintage perfection of David Suchet's Poirot? If so, then the Labours of Hercule podcast was made for you. We're taking a deep dive into every episode of this masterpiece of television and giving you the clues you need to solve the case along with Poirot himself. We present the case and you solve it. Whether you're a detective in the making or if you just simply want to gush over the genius and art decodence of Agatha Christie, then subscribe now to the Labours of Hercule wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>